Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, been a different week for me. Um, Normally, uh, my family and I are with my wife's cousins at the Outer Banks. Uh, They have been so generous over the past 20-something years to uh, lease a home there and invite us. We've been there 20 years, but due to some health issues and some people who were vulnerable to COVID, that house was canceled. We weren't at the Outer Banks this year. Instead, we did what's called a staycation. Has anyone ever done a staycation? A staycation is actually inappropriately named. It should be called a work station, right? So essentially, that's what happened with me. Instead of being at the Outer Banks and doing literally nothing, I've spent the last week working on projects around my house. One of them involved a concrete slab that had to be refinished and a lot of work that went into that. And so found myself doing a ton of work And have you ever noticed that when you do a home project, it always takes twice as long and costs twice as much much money as you expected? How many of you know that that's true? So it went from several projects down to one project, and the budget kind of got blown apart. But needless to say, it's completed. But during that process where I was working on this concrete, a friend of mine, Peter, who's literally sitting here in this sanctuary in this moment, called me up and said, hey, how would you like to go play golf? Well, I told him no at first, and then found out that the golf course had switched to Charlottesville, and not only that, but we have a mutual friend that's going to golf with us, and his name is Carl, and Carl's a professional golfer, literally PGA Tour golfer, and so I thought, dear God, what do you want me to do? And I, I quit working with concrete, and I went and played, played golf. Well, long story short, while we're playing golf, Carl's playing with myself and with Peter, and I come to the 18th hole. And on the 18th hole on this course, I take out my seven iron. It's about 175 yards to the green. So I take out my seven iron, and Carl pulls up next to me. Here's what he says. Pete, I've been watching you play for 17 holes. He said, here's what I want you to do. He said, when you get ready to hit this ball... I want you to think the following. I want you to change what you're thinking. Okay, got that. And he said, not only that, he said, but your grip, he said, your right hand is a little bit off to the right, and what I want you to do is bring it more over top of the club. And he said, the reason for that is, he said, have you noticed you've been hitting the ball to the left? And here I am thinking to myself, you've watched me hit the ball to the left for 17 holes. And you're finally telling me how to correct that. And he goes, here's why. He said, if your hand is a little bit off to the right, it tends to allow the club face to turn and you make the ball go right. If you take your right hand and you bring it a little bit, just a little, tweak it a little, put it more over top, what you'll find out is your shot will straighten right up. I said, okay. 
So what I did was I lined up on the ball. It's 175 yards to the green. So I line up on the ball, and I think the thought he told me to think. He said, I want you to think this, and it had to do with how to hit the ball. He said, I want you to think differently. So I thought differently, and I took my right hand from here, and I just tweaked it a little, and I hit the ball in 176 yards right up on the green, about 20 feet from the pin, and I'm putting for birdie. By the way, I bogeyed the hole. I horrible at putting. Anyway, that's a whole nother story. But anyway, I hit it up on the green. And as I was thinking about this sermon and what we're going to process through through the whole summer, we're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount. And there are many people who believe that the Christian faith is based on Jesus coming into this world to get us to think a little bit differently and then modify some of our behavior. And if you think differently and you modify some of your behavior, you're gonna start winning. Well, here's what I wanna tell you and here's what the Sermon on the Mount is about and we're gonna process through this all summer, Sermon on the Mount. That is this, Jesus did not come into this world so that you would think differently and you would have some behavior modification. He came into this world and he ushered in a kingdom that will transform you from the inside out. Listen, the world in which we're living, I'm sure you felt it. If you haven't felt it, you've disengaged from culture since January or late December. It's this. Almost all of us are feeling a weight and a heaviness that we have not felt before. How many of you know that that's true? You look at health issues, economic issues, political issues, racial issues. Here's what I want to say. If you think a little change in thinking and some behavior modification is going to transform what needs to be transformed, you're out of your mind. What we need is God's presence. What we need is transformation of our hearts in the communities in which we live. So again, here's Carl, a professional golfer. And by the way, my drive never seemed to really get better, even though, but my iron shot did. As a matter of fact, we were sitting up on one tee box and he hit this drive. Peter will attest to this. He hit the ball so far. It was in so straight. And I looked at Peter and said, there's a big difference between a professional golfer and an amateur, isn't there? And here's what my next thought was. Why don't I just let Carl hit the ball for me? Why not? Just let him do it. I mean, Carl, if you're so good, you just, listen, following Jesus has a lot to do with that. It has a lot to do with looking at Jesus and saying, I'm going to ask you to do that through me. And the Sermon on the Mount, just so you know, is this sermon that Jesus brings at the outset, at the inauguration of his kingdom. And what it is not is change a little bit of your thinking and some behavior modification, and then you'll be right with God. It's not what it's about. But I've heard a lot of sermons about what the gospel is. And here's what I've heard, that if you follow Jesus, what he's going to do is he's going to help you think differently. And then not only that, but you'll behave differently. And then you're going to win, win, win. 
And being with Jesus is about winning and becoming a winner. And if you're a loser, follow Jesus and you'll become a winner. What you're going to discover is, is that the Sermon on the Mount is categorically opposed to that presentation of the gospel. Just so you know. So, because we are living in tough times, and because it has been unusually difficult to be a human person and live in this world that we feel like is moving in ways of dysfunction and division like we've never seen before, I think that the Sermon on the Mount will gather us back together and bring us to the central realities of why Jesus came, what he taught, and what he's looking for in us and through us. Now, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to begin this morning by looking more at the Sermon on the Mount, yes, but we're going to begin to more look at who is Jesus, why did he come, why did he teach what he taught, who was his audience, and where I want us to begin is in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It's the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Now picture this, we've got the Gospel of Matthew, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospel of Matthew is written definitively to Jews. Got to know that. So the Gospel of Matthew is written to a Jewish audience by a Jewish man. And in the midst of that, he brings his vision of who Jesus is. Now in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, notice we'll have four chapters prior to the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to deal with those very briefly. But what I want us to do is begin by reading the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, just the first five verses. So here we are, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Here's how Matthew sets up this sermon for us. Here's what he writes. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. That's very fascinating. So Jesus notices there's a large crowd and he goes up on a mountain and he sits down and it says his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. If you were to look at the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Luke, you would discover it's called the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus in Luke delivers the sermon on a flat place. So obviously Jesus is preaching this sermon more than once, which is totally reasonable. But here we discover he's on a, on a hillside. Matthew wants, to know, wants us to notice this. There's a large crowd. They're moving with Jesus. And he sits down to teach. But it says ultimately that he was, began to teach his disciples. So those 12 that are with him, he's teaching them. And there's this huge crowd, big crowd. Reading on. It says, and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit... For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for, for they will inherit the earth. And if you haven't caught it yet, Jesus' first three phrases into his inaugural sermon where he's proclaiming and describing a new kingdom of which he is the king starts off in a way that I would have never started my inaugural sermon. He's talking about people who are spiritually impoverished. He's talking about people who are grieving and mourning. And he's talking about people who are meek, people who are showing restraint over their reality, their gifts, and their strengths. And he says, these are the people 
that the kingdom is for. Now we're going to come back to that in just a few moments, and next Sunday's sermon will deal in depth with what Jesus actually preaches. What I want to do today is kind of do the backdrop for his sermon so that we can all understand the reality of these three things. Who is Jesus, according to Matthew? Who is his audience that hears the inaugural sermon? And number three, why is the Sermon on the Mount such a big deal anyway? Those three things, two why questions, I'm sorry, two who questions, who is Jesus, who is the audience, and one why question, why is the Sermon on the Mount such a big deal? Now again, we're reading from the Gospel of Matthew. And what's important to understand is we're going to be in this Gospel for several weeks. We need to know a little bit about the author. So it's the Gospel of Matthew, so are there any hints as to who wrote the gospel. Anyone? Matthew. Very good. So Matthew writes the gospel, but here's what's even more fascinating. He shows up in his own gospel. He writes about himself. And we discover the author of this gospel in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. We meet Matthew. Here's where we meet him. Here's what the gospel tells us. A good amount of time after Jesus preaches his inaugural sermon, Sermon on the Mount, it says, and Jesus went on from there, and he saw a man named who? Matthew. There's the writer of our gospel. Jesus sees a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And the reality of it is, if you are a first century reader and you're reading the gospel of Matthew, is this gospel is circulating throughout the world that reads that language and is being called by God, you would have stopped in your tracks and said, no way. No way. Because the Bible says that Jesus comes up to this guy and says two words. Follow me. And anyone, especially a Jew, at that point would have gone, that can't be possible. Because a tax collector is a Jew who has sold their soul to the Roman Empire and is collecting taxes from Jews for the Romans. So any tax collector who is a Jew is viewed as the ultimate traitor of God and the Jewish nation. The ultimate traitor. So here's where we meet the writer of this gospel. He is a tax collector. He has betrayed God, betrayed Israel. And what does Jesus do? Jesus walks up to him and says two words. Follow me. And again, any first century reader, especially a Jewish reader, would have gone, that can't be possible. That's not who you build your kingdom on. It's not how this works. You build the kingdom on righteous people, not unrighteous people. And then we read on. Jesus said, follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Reading on, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, so not only does he follow Jesus, but he throws a banquet for Jesus and invites all his posse to come and meet Jesus. And here's what the scripture says. And Jesus, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, meaning Jesus's, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And then he quotes from the Older Testament. 
I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So what we discover is the author of the book of the gospel that we're reading was a total outcast, and he meets Jesus, and Jesus invites him in. He invites him in. So the question becomes, who is Jesus? Well, the Gospel of Matthew tells us what Matthew wants us to understand about who Jesus is. First of all, if you open the book of Matthew, you're going to see a huge list of names, which to us in the West seems very odd, but to any Jewish first century reader, it's essential. Because whoever's going to be the Messiah, who's ever going to be the God-man in the world, has to be related to King David by blood has to be because the prophets had announced that one greater than David would come and sit on David's throne. So when you crack open the book of Matthew, what you discover is there's this lineage, but when you read the lineage, what you quickly discover, it's absolutely scandalous. There are prostitutes in Jesus's lineage. There's adulterous affairs in Jesus's lineage. There are people in his lineage that you wouldn't want in your family tree, and yet Matthew goes out of his way to show you they're there. Following this lineage, then we read the birth story. Well, can you have envisioned the birth story of God's son coming into the world? Oh my goodness, it'll be a straight line, it'll be simple, it'll be awesome, it'll be incredible, and when you read the birth story of Jesus, it's anything but that. You've got his mom pregnant out of wedlock. You've got his his earthly father struggling to even believe the story and wanting to take Mary as his wife. They end up at their hometown. The room where they should have been invited to be in is full, i.e., meaning scandal. They're not welcomed where they should have been welcomed. And you've got this birth story of Jesus that is anything but a straight line. And then following that, what you have is some magi show up, Gentiles from another people group. They show up and declare him as king of Israel. And then following that, what you discover is the sitting king determines that if there's another king, he needs to kill him, which that's what kings do. And so Jesus and his family take off in the middle of night and they end up in the nation of Egypt. Very strange. They end up in Egypt. And when Herod dies, Joseph and Mary return to the promised land. They return to Israel. Very strange. And Jesus is raised in Nazareth, a nowheresville town. Then we discover Jesus, and this is the first four chapters of Matthew. Jesus now starts to move towards his public ministry, and we discover that he goes and he is baptized by his first cousin, John the Baptist. The heavens open, and God cheers from heaven, this is my boy, and I love him. Instantly, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit to go out into the wilderness, into the desert, to be tested for 40 days and for 40 nights. And then Jesus crosses back through the water, and he enters into the promised land since he had spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness and did not fail. He successfully went through that time of testing. And then he re-enters Israel. He chooses some disciples. And then the scripture tells us, in Matthew 5, he goes up on the side of a mountain 
and there's a huge crowd. And he delivers his inaugural sermon about the invasion of a new kingdom of which he is king. And the kingdom he describes is all upside down. All upside down. Now what you might, might not be able to detect, but every first century Jewish reader would have, was that Jesus has just traced the steps of Moses. And Matthew is declaring to you that if you think Moses was something, wait till you meet this guy. Because if you would remember when Moses was born, Pharaoh made a move to kill him. And in moving to kill him, Jesus' parents hide him. And ultimately, where does Moses end up? Where is he raised? Egypt. And he exits Egypt and he comes with the people of God in the Exodus. And what do they move through? They move through the water. Jesus goes through the waters of baptism. And then Moses and the people of Israel end up in the wilderness. And how long are they there? 40 years. They're tested. They tried. They fail miserably. Jesus does the exact same path goes to Egypt, comes out of Egypt, and now he moves through the waters of baptism. He goes out into the wilderness, and he's tested for 40 days. And what does Moses do when he enters into the promised land? He goes up on the mountain, and he delivers a new covenant. He receives the Ten Commandments. He receives the law of God, and he provides them for God's people. And he says to his people, there's a new covenant relationship with the God who's created all things. And it begins with the Ten Commandments, and it ends up with 613 laws by the close of the Older Testament. And so Jesus goes up on a hillside. He goes up on, on a mountain just like Moses. And he declares a new covenant, that there's a new kingdom. There's a new people, and God's doing a new thing. And Matthew wants you to know that's your new Moses. That's Jesus. And he's going to lead you into God's best. He's going to lead you into God's fullness. Well, as we read in Matthew 5, there was a large crowd. That's what it tells us. Jesus' disciples gather around him. The Sermon on the Mount is actually for his disciples. Other people overhear it. But at the end of Matthew chapter 4, we discover who's in the crowd. Matthew's already told us. And in Matthew chapter 4, verses 24 through 25, Scripture tells us this, that news about Jesus had spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demons possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them all. Verse 25, large crowds from Galilee, well, that makes total sense, right? Jesus is from the Galilee. It's where he's living. He's in Capernaum. So people from the Galilee are following him. And what you can't know is the next place is shocking. The Decapolis? That's not Jewish territory. Jews don't live there. That's where pagans live. People who are outside of God's best live in the Decapolis. And yet what the gospel shows us and what Matthew lets us know is that there were people following Jesus from Galilee. Makes total sense. But then the Decapolis, ah, that doesn't sit right because they're pagans. And just so you know, people from the Galilee have nothing to do with people from the Decapolis because they're unrighteous. And then it goes on to say, then there were people from Jerusalem in the crowd. Well, that makes sense. That's where the temple is. But then there's also people from Judea. 
people in Jerusalem don't like the people from Judea. And then the last phrase says this, and the region across the Jordan followed him. The region across the Jordan is totally pagan. They're not Jewish. They're not righteous people. And yet they're in the crowd. So picture, Jesus is now moving towards his public ministry. He's brought together a few of his disciples. He does just what Moses did, and he goes up onto the side of a mountain, and Matthew chapter 4 just told us who's in the crowd, and none of them belong together. None of them. They all have reason to hate each other. They've hated each other for centuries, and now here they are because of Jesus, and they're there on the side of a mountain, and Jesus begins to speak. Matthew 5, 1 through 5, we read it already, but we're going to read it again. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, who's in them? The crowd is made up of people that have no business being together other than Jesus. When Jesus saw the crowds, he came up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Isn't it stunning that Jesus is inaugurating a brand new kingdom and what he's saying is this, is if you are spiritually impoverished, this new kingdom's for you. If you are grieving and mourning and your heart is broken because your life and your world is not what you thought it should be, you're in. And if you're meek, if you've done things in your own strength and you've seen the catastrophic nature of what happens when you do things in your own strength and now you've been refraining, now you've been restraining yourself, now you've been holding back because you don't like what you've been seeing, you're in. Isn't it stunning? Jesus' new kingdom is about being impoverished spiritually, being brokenhearted, and being meek. I would have never inaugurated a new kingdom that way. New kingdoms are built on people who are winners, people who have it all together, People who are the type that always come out on top. And Jesus said, that's not the new kingdom. The new kingdom are for pe is for people who are impoverished, who are grieving, and who are meek. Reality of it is, is that the gospel that is often preached is a gospel that says, if you follow Jesus, you will always win. You'll always come out on top. I've recently heard explanations of the gospel that if your life isn't what you want it to be, come to Jesus and he will bless you so much that you won't even recognize how prosperous you become. We're not three sentences in to the Sermon on the Mount and we know that that's not the kingdom that Jesus initiates. But I'd also tell you this, that the kingdom of Jesus also is not about thinking different thoughts and a little bit of behavior modification so you can hit life more straight and win more 
and shoot more holes in ones. It's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to initiate and to bring in a kingdom that transforms us from the inside out. And if you know you've got spiritual poverty, if you know your heart's broken and the world is not the way it should be and your life isn't the way it should be, Jesus says this kingdom is for you. It's for you. You're in. And Matthew is a prime example. Can you imagine Matthew as he's writing the Sermon on the Mount going, oh my goodness, Jesus came to me and he welcomed me in. I knew I was out, but Jesus welcomed me in. With this sermon series, I'm going to challenge us to put feet to our faith. But in putting feet to our faith, I'm not concerned if you've walked with Jesus for decades or you're just checking out faith. What I'm concerned about is this. Will you be be open to this new kingdom? Will you prepare your heart for what is next over the rest of this summer? Will you be the type of follower of Jesus where you will put your faith, your belief, and your trust in him. Because I know I found in my own life, I need way more than just a new way of thinking and some behavior modification. My goodness, if a new way of thinking and behavior modification was what we had needed, these problems would have been solved a long time ago. What we need is spiritual renewal. We need an invasion of the kingdom of God And Jesus announces that on a hillside in the Galilee. And it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Will you stand with me as we close? As we stand together, I'm going to ask that we would close our eyes and open up our hearts. Maybe you are exhausted because you have spent your energy as a Christian trying to think the right thoughts and somehow, some way, change your behavior so that God would love you more. You're exhausted. Jesus inaugurates a kingdom that's very different than that. The kingdom of Jesus is one where we admit we are spiritually bankrupt. We admit that we need something different and we've been grieving and mourning. If that's you, I'm just going to simply ask that you would open up your heart to Jesus and that you would take this journey with us through the rest of this summer, recognizing that blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn.